0: Galileo looked through his telescope Mm -hmm. and he decided that only shape, size, motion and location, only these four things need to be studied. He laid the foundation for modern scientific thinking. Once that happened gradually all these other dialectical thinking and mystical thinking, philosophical thinking was all pushed aside because Scientific evidence started disproving what Aristotle was teaching. For how many thousand years everybody was studying Aristotle? What did Aristotle say? Aristotle said if you drop a 10 kilo weight and 1 kilo weight, 10, that will fall 10 times faster. He said if you fire a cannonball, it will go straight and then it will drop down. It won't have that parabola, it will just drop. When its energy is over, it will just drop down and there was no experimental proof. These were all worked out in his mind and that was considered to be valid knowledge for how many years? The Church accepted Aristotelian thinking and they taught it. Aristotle was a philosopher but he also laid the groundwork for modern science. Mm -hmm. This classification, biology, physics, this is all from Aristotle. He was a student of Plato but he disagreed with the Platonic idea of the intelligibles and the visibles. Plato divided the whole world into two categories. The visibles, this is what we can see. And then the intelligibles, that's like the a priori, Mm. or the axiomatic, the names come from the intelligibles. And he said that the intelligibles is where all the forms reside. Mm. That means, as if you take the example of a chair, the perfect chair is already in you, a priori, in your mind. And when I see the visible chair, then my mind makes a connection between that a priori ideal chair and this chair. That is what he was teaching the Platonic idea of the world of intelligibles, which is the real world. And this is a shadowy world, this is a duplicate world. But his own student, his own student, his brightest student was Aristotle. Aristotle disagreed with Plato. And he said matter has a potential to unfold. There is no such uh, intelligible realm where all forms reside. Matter has a potential in it and that potential can unfold. So He taught almost the opposite. Mm. And his ideas were accepted by the church later on. And he had a very famous student called Alexander the Great. Mm. Alexander the Great was Aristotle's student. And Alexander the Great would conquer all, he was in this big conquest Mm. conquering the world and he would send back specimens wherever he went Mm. to Aristotle. So Aristotle was classifying and Mm. categorizing and studying. He was a phenomenal mind Mm. and he wrote on almost every subject, on known subject at that time. And his thinking laid the basis for the curriculum of the Church. When the Church started teaching its students, what will they teach? They used to teach Aristotle. This went on till Galileo came along and started doing experiments. When he did the experiment he found that what Aristotle was saying was not right, it was wrong. And therefore the experimental method, Bacon, Experiment, Observation and Inference, these three things were to be done. You had to do the experiment, you had to observe and then you come to your inference. So when they applied this methodology, they started discovering many new facts. Uh, This hit the church very badly because the whole church story was, you know, discredited. According to the church, 4000 BC was when the earth was formed. And that is going by genealogy, by going to see the life of each prophet and then his ancestors. You trace the ancestors back to Adam and that is about 4000 years. But when science started investigating the science of geology, then fossils, fossil records, the dinosaurs, and then the planets, then Copernicus came and said, you know, Ptolemy had said that earth is the centre of the universe and it is, not, it is stationary and the sun is moving around the earth. And the church accepted that. The church was teaching Ptolemy's cosmology. And then Copernicus came and said that, no, we are orbiting the sun. That was a big revolution. And then, of course, Darwin came through his observation and he said, we are not descendants of God, we are only evolved apes. We have evolved, our ancestors were the chimpanzees and then Freud came and said, you are not the master of your life, it is your unconscious which controls you. So these three people, Copernicus, Darwin and Freud, these three people completely demolished the status of human beings, who they thought was built in the image of God, and they were some kind of divine beings. Anyway, that is the history of science. Great that they could disprove many of Aristotle, but what was the problem? The problem is they became positivist, positivist, empirical, all evidence had to be empirical and their outlook became positive. That was the defect. Now in the science of absolute he is trying to correct that problem and bring us back to the centre. By saying that there are both these, there is a negative and a positive factor, which function together. Wherever there is life, you can find a positive and a negative factor functioning together. So, when he says, the power, however, is of two kinds, known as the bright and the dark, thus there is no coexistence between these, as with light and darkness. Shakti, the power, too, however, Dvividha is of two kinds. Nyeya, known as Taijasi, the bright, cha, and Tamasi, the dark. Iti das, sahavas, nasti, there is no coexistence, anayoho Ana yoho, between these. Tejas timira yoho eva, as with light and darkness. The totality of forces unitively understood and presented in the first verse as Parmeshwara, in the second verse as Prabhu, and in the third verse as Swasmin, is here presented as the bright and the dark aspects of the Absolute, Taijasi and Tamasi. To understand the implication of this verse, we should look at it structurally. The structure adopted here is identical with that given in the Mandukya Upanishad, as an explanation of the mystic symbol Om. The word Om contains three distinct intonations, followed by silence. The three articulated sounds are A, pronounce A, U, pronounce U, and M, pronounce M. The sound A symbolizes the empirical world of transactions, to which our mind relates itself as the subject. In this, the object of experience is considered as an entity separated from the subject. The world that is experienced is called Vishwam in Sanskrit, the literal meaning of which is the universe or the all-filling. When consciousness experiences awareness of the universe and identifies itself as the knower of the universe, the self-identity arising out of that is called Vishwa Abhimani. Here we should remember the first verse of the Advaita Deepika in which the universe is defined as a composition of multitudinous names, concepts, and objects of interest. We come to know an object of interest by remembering, hearing, or reading its name, and thus causing within ourselves its corresponding mental image. So that is your horizontal percept concept. By relating a name to a form, the idea of it becomes a coordinated concept forever in our memory. Of itself the object of interest has no name. It is by our human deliberation that a name is attached to it. But the name thus given in no way modifies the nature or composition of the object. So, a rose by any other name will smell just Mm. as sweet. By giving a name you don't change the object. In the same way the concepts surrounding our perception of an object arise only in the subject. In the same way, the concepts surrounding our perception of an object arise only in the subject. Moreover, there is no guarantee that the concept has a one-to-one correspondence with all the properties of the object. Concepts which were thought to be valid in past experiences may undergo a process of modification or correction as our knowledge becomes more intimate and precise. Thus when a person passes from one experience to another of the same order, in a recurring series in which the same object or name is likely to repeat, the concept becomes modified. For example, the concepts surrounding the perception by a husband as the subject of his wife as the object are very likely to be modified as time passes. The wife also is likely to modify the conceptual framework through which she observes her husband in both cases, the objects remain what they were and are. Only the concepts change. Thus, it is that the nature and composition of an object can never be known to us in its own reality. When we view an object, there arises in us a self-luminous concept, and we presume that it is appropriate to consider the object as having that quality which the concept gives to it. As consciousness arises out of unconsciousness and recalls a little of its hidden aspect, so does the unknown allow some unveiling of itself to give us a glimpse of its nature. Carl Jung makes certain divisions in the whole of subjective matter. He begins with two spheres, the physical and the psychological. Then he divides the psychological world into two realms, the conscious and the unconscious. In the same way, he divides the physical world into the known and the unknown. What is known in the physical world is minimal compared to the unlimited expanse of the universe, including whole galactic systems that is unknown to us. And although the unconscious is not to be taken as spatial, it has a depth which is also unfathomable. Even in the psychophysical organism of an individual, the unconscious functions may be on the order of a million times more extensive than the voluntary ones. Both Freud and Jung speak of the unconscious. Jung further speaks of the personal unconscious, the collective unconscious and the archetypes. Jung maintains the view that there is no way of knowing anything of the unconscious until it manifests its contents in some manner, either in or on the threshold of the conscious. As far as what is unknown in the physical world is concerned, there is no deliberate intention on the part of that unknown to keep knowledge of itself hidden from us. Man can expand his observations into what is now hidden from him and fabricate for himself increasing number of methods to penetrate into the unknown. In any case, the known and the unknown cannot be thought of as being the same by definition and to speak of the unconscious is a contradiction in terms. We are not conscious of what is unconscious, and therefore we cannot conceptualize about it, nor, strictly speaking, predicate its existence. Narayana Guru says that like light and darkness, these two, the known and the unknown, or the conscious and the unconscious, cannot coexist at the same time in the same situation. That is a good critic of the... Psychologists who speak about the unconscious as if they know what the unconscious is. Mm. If it is unconscious, it is not conscious. No. So how can you say anything about it? You cannot say about it. When the unconscious fa- manifests or, or exists, then the conscious cannot exist, they cannot coexist. Mm. Similarly, when the conscious mind is, uh, you are aware of your conscious mind, there cannot be any unconscious in it. When you sleep at night, you get a dream. Mm. But you cannot get a dream like that when you are in the wakeful state, Mm. wakeful state. You can also daydream, which is just let your imagination go a little bit free and loose. But you cannot get anything like a dream in the wakeful. In your conscious mind you cannot experience the unconscious. In dreams you are beginning to experience a bit of the unconscious. And therefore you have the art of analyzing dreams, you can know what is going on in your unconscious by studying dreams and that is what um, the psychologists did. Far we have been discussing the implications of the first letter R of the mystic syllable Om. The second letter U indicates a purely subjective state. The tree that we see before us in the wakeful state is illumined by a light external to itself, such as that radiating from the sun or reflected by the moon or perhaps that of a fire. But the tree which we see in a dream is a self-luminous idea. The eye consciousness that witnesses a self-conscious, self-luminous idea and is affected by such an experience is called Taijisa Abhimani. That is the second U state. The world of this state of consciousness consists only of names and concepts. Here the concepts relating to objects are experienced as perceptions in which the external aspect of the senses are not operating, that is in a dream. However, we should not lose sight of the fact that whatever is experienced by us in both the wakeful and dream states is part of our conscious awareness. A question arises here, what gives a dream the precision and clarity of objective perception? Without the operation of sensory aids, usually in such perception, and without the presence of an external object. We have already seen that within us are incipient memories associated with feelings such as pain and pleasure, that is the vasana. And that these latent memories have the ability to present themselves to consciousness as impelling urges. It is a matter of false speculation how these urges can create appropriate symbols giving release to themselves through the dramatic presentation of assemblies composed of audiovisual memories. This, the aspect of consciousness we have termed Taijasabhimani, dominates the state of consciousness as the one who experiences again the projected situations, for example, pain, pleasure or indifference. When we experience something in the wakeful state, Where do the impressions created by that experience go upon its cessation? We know they do not leave us altogether, they become parts of the totality of our memories. And when we are in the dream state, as if from nowhere, many forms will appear to our consciousness. Where do these come from? There must be a hidden aspect of consciousness in which the impressions associated with experiences can be stored. From that same aspect of consciousness, called by us the unconscious, these impressions may be recalled. In the above-mentioned structural scheme, this aspect is indicated by the letter M in the symbol OM. So you have the three, that is, wakeful, where you are subject and object, dream, where there is only subject, and now m, where it is, it is the memories. The third state of consciousness is called sushupti. We begin by asking, what is the nature of the unconscious? In Indian psychology, Vedanta and yoga, the term unconscious is not used. Instead, it is given as avyākṛta, which is derived from vikāra, meaning undergoing transformation to assume a specific form. Ākāra means form, thus avyākṛta means an indefinite state, in non-manifestation. The opposite of this is Vyakrata. Strangely, this indistinct and static inertial state is called the causal consciousness. It is, is karana sharira. it is in constant resonance with the wakeful and dream states. In the wakeful and dream worlds, the mind is permitted to attend to only one meaningful pattern at a time. These patterns are structured out of a select group of data, taken either from the external world of objects or from the internal world of pre-registered memories. Before it can become a memory, an actual event or experience must undergo a psychic transformation. In Sanskrit this processing is called samskaram. So there you have, that is what samskara is, a psychic transformation. From something physical it must transform into something in your psyche. The literal meaning of this is culturing. Often we are unable to account for some ingrained response or reactive conditioning displayed by ourselves or others or some talent or aptitude which seems inherent in the genetic makeup of a person. Try as we may, we cannot find a cause for these sometimes very powerful traits in the present life of a person. Despite the most perfect childhood conditions, Some aberration or negative reaction may persist in an individual throughout his life. Conversely, from the most unlikely circumstances, a person may manifest a great and already highly developed talent or skill even in childhood. Apart from impressions cultured in this lifetime, one must bring with him at birth the essences of previously cultured experiences. These may result either from the chromosome structure inherited from the parents or, as is the common belief in India, from a previous incarnation. If the unconscious is seen as total darkness, how then does it operate as if with an awareness of the insecurity and possible destruction to which the organism and the individual self are exposed? Clearly, something seems interested in our welfare and takes adequate measures to enable us to avoid such threats. Here we have to accept the paradox or enigma of the unconscious operating as a superconsciousness. So that is in the frame of reference you put shupti in the bottom where you put concept here, and you will put turiya on the top. So he is talking of turiya here. In previous verses we have referred repeatedly to names and concepts. Let us imagine the setting of a flock of sheep grazing in a pasture which is adjacent to a forest. Out of the forest comes a large herd of elephants who, because of their size and numbers, appear as threatening as a black thundercloud. Such a scene may inspire an artist to interpret it on canvas or a poet to picture it in beautiful verse. Neither the sheep nor the elephants depicted in the painting or the poem are real and both the painter and the poet are limited in their expression by the medium in which they choose to work. Only the most subtle and advanced of painters would attempt to portray a flock of white sheep on a white canvas, using only white pigment. Nor would a painter normally attempt a picture of black elephants on a black canvas, using only black pigments. Generally, the white colour would be contrasted with the dark colour. For the presentation of the cosmic world, it is also required that there be a complementarity of bright and dark forces. This example is given to correct an anomaly in the previous verse. There too, too much emphasis was placed on the existential aspect of the world by using the analogy of a tree and its seed. In the present case, the object is reduced to a picture of the object. The object is out there but is not independent of the mind which experiences it. This is further elaborated in the next verse.